in in my head, this is how Billy Joe wrote it. He closed his eyes and he pictured that moment in a musical when all the cast members come out on stage <laughs> and they're all in unison and they're pumping their fists and there's a bell and they're doing something. And he was like, I need a song like that. Welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where experienced musicians and lifelong friends get together and discuss an album from Robert Dimery's book, 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. Uh, We do this each week and uh, give our jackass opinions on uh, whether we think it belongs on the list. At the end of the episode, we'll actually take a formal vote to see if we uh, need to validate these hardworking artists and classify their life's work on this uh, seminal list. If you haven't heard this album, uh, we're actually doing Green Day's American Idiot this week. If you haven't heard that album, there's a good chance you've actually heard some of the songs. Um, They had a few kind of uh, smash hits from this album uh, back in 2004, but we'll, you know, we'll play a few tracks, a few uh, samples to give you a flavor uh, for this album. So uh, without further ado, let's uh, introduce our, our distinguished panel today. Uh, let's, uh, let's start with Phil. I'd, I'd love to hear a, a tweet length review of American Idiot. Yeah, I would say uh, American Idiot is Green Day's take on the wall circa 2000. Five. Okay. What about you, Rob? Yeah, I was going to say that everything about this record feels recycled and repurposed in a good way. Kind of like they process their back catalog along with six more decades of popular music and then filtered it back through effectively the same band that recorded Dookie in the 90s. Hey, this is Adam. Rob, I like that you mentioned Dookie because I'm also going to talk about it. So if you want to talk about a band who has grown... The last track on Dookie, 10 years prior, was a song that was a minute and 40 seconds long that was blatantly about masturbation. And in 2004, they write a protest rock opera concept album. This is growth. So you're saying going from um, from songs about masturbation to calling George W. Bush Hitler is, uh, is a solid <laughs> evolution, I think. <laughs> well, now that you phrase it that way... Yeah. <laughs> No, I, I think you're exactly right, though. This is definitely an evolution for them. Um, it actually marked a, a bit of a comeback for them. So this is their seventh album. By the way, I'm Alan. <laughs> My tweet length review on this. Um, I tried to listen to this more than once, but Spotify informed me that I had reached my uh, annual limit of power chords and wouldn't <laughs> actually play the album again. So I, you know, I'm kind of going uh, blind here. Yeah. So look, I don't think Green Day needs much of an introduction. I think they're a pretty well-known band, but um, just in the spirit of a little bit of background on them. So three-piece spanned out of the Bay Area. Uh, Billy Joe Armstrong is the the kind of engine, the creative engine of, of Green Day, along with uh, Mike Durnt on bass, who, uh, funny enough, I learned this as a bass player. He got his name because uh, playing with a pick, which uh, you know some people have a problem with, apparently he used to make, not from his mouth, but people thought his playing sounded like it went durnt, 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 durnt. And uh, no, no, <laughs> no. I, I, at least that's, no way. Well, look, I never said we're, you know, 
news? Even if it's not, this is the greatest fake news I've ever heard. Thank you. Who in the world would have a problem with bass playing with a pick, Alan? Weirdos. I don't know. <laughs> Uncultured uh, apes. Yeah. Yeah. Trolls. Also trolls. <laughs> Definitely trolls. That's in line with the, I've heard people want their guitar sound. They talk about, you know, you call up somebody and what do you want your, the tubes in your amp to sound like? The brown sound. Brown. Right? So. <laughs> is that what that is? <laughs> yes. Okay. Nice. Well, uh, well, then that sounds right right about uh, up the alley for, for Trey Cool, who's the drummer, um, who I don't know his backstory. Something tells me that's not his actual name. But nonetheless, sounds cool. So they kind of came out of the Bay Area really like hit the scene hard in the early nineties with um, they had an album called Kerplunk that was, was sort of like an indie favorite. And then, um, but Dookie was, was really their like smash hit back in the early nineties. In fact, I listened to this, that album so much growing up that dude, if there right? if it was possible to do like a Spotify year end wrap up in CD form, like that album would have been number one, like head and shoulders. <laughs> like I was into that shit in high school. But yeah, so, you know, they, they kind of, uh, you know, bopped around for a while, had a few albums after Dookie, had a few pretty big hits. But, you know, come early 2000 or so, they, they put out an album called Warning, I think it was called, which was a little bit more of a, you know, they started evolving towards more like folk pop, you know, a little bit more like laid back music. Didn't do too well commercially, um, but, you know, I think it was critically well received. But at the time, they actually, the they were in like a rough place where the, apparently some of the producers wanted them, wanted Billy Joe to kind of kick the other guys out and just move on as Billy Joe Armstrong, thinking that he could possibly draw more and be a little bit more effective from like a touring perspective. They set out to record another album called, let's see if I have this down, Cigarettes and Valentines, I think it was called. Is this the one that the masters were stolen? Or is that, yes. is yeah. that a different so, one? Yeah. No, you're exactly yeah. right. So apparently the, I don't know if the studio got robbed or how this even happens or how you don't have backups, but long story short. <laughs> there's no cloud at that point. Does that mean somebody's walking around with those masters right now? Well, they Yo. got them back, apparently. I mean, what are you going to do with oh, those? Okay. Are you can put them on eBay? Like... <laughs> but yeah that that would be pretty cool i do think they got him back and maybe released a few of those tracks as like demos later on what a weird negotiation that must have been like hey so i stole your master tapes (laughs) uh there's a very limited market for these look also hey by the way i'm inadvertently responsible for you making this hit record abandoning this piece of shit that's a great you're welcome that's a great point well i think this was probably the best thing that could have happened to them because they ended up producing. So they ended up starting from scratch and wrote American idiot, which ended up probably being their most successful album. They're certainly their most like critically acclaimed. And the, the album is, is essentially a, a, their take on a concept album. So, you know, sort of a power pop punk uh, rock opera, I guess, for lack of a better term, definitely taken from, you know, a a lot of the who's playbook, you know, from back in the, in the day. And so, yeah, they, you know, they come up with this album. It's right around the time when we were going to war with Iraq and, you know, there was a little bit of political strife, which, you know, looking back on that now, it's hilarious to think that there was any like (laughs) 
that people had any problem with what was happening back then to see how seems yeah. like such a such yeah. a quaint time yeah. right yeah sure <laughs> 22 years in retrospect all you did was lie to get us into war that's actually not that bad if you think about it <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so what let's just go to some general kind of overall thoughts on this record i i think we'll we'll have some uh some spirited opinions based on our, our text thread, but um, Phil, what would you kind of think of this album overall? Yeah. I mean, this is the sort of thing that's right up my alley and that like, I sort of love a record that like tells a story, you know, whether it's, you know, sort of in the way that this tells a story or, you know, you sort of mentioned the who Tommy Quadrophenia, even George Clinton, who we did a few weeks back, uh, you know, has some conceptual elements to some of those records. Uh, I thought what was really interesting about this record, you know, then I'll sort of pass it along. I thought that this record was really different than many of the other records that we've listened to so far because it stood up to a listen, like a very direct, I'm going to sit down and listen to this in a way that many other records did not, but in a different way, like it's not really background music. You're not going to pop this on and cook dinner. You know, so I thought I thought it was very interesting in that it was it inverts in that way or what my experience was inverted. I just want to say funny enough, I actually did cook dinner to this tonight because I just wanted another spin through. But it was not my like maiden voyage with it. But um, it, it definitely did not feel like dinner music. Like it was a very angry <laughs> <Sure>. uh, cooking <laughs> session. Right. I know what you mean. I mean, it, it may partly be the genre itself that just sort of demands attention and because they only have three players and a relatively what you could call a limited palette in the the toolkit there, they have to do a lot of song dynamics, you know, stops and starts mm-hmm. and dropouts and come-ins and things like that. But in terms of my, my overall thoughts, I thought it was a way more fun than I think it had any right to be. Like, I enjoyed it much more than I thought I would. And I ended up knowing more of the songs than I thought I did. I had never listened to this record as a record. But because there are so many hits on this, you know, I felt pretty comfortable with a lot of the tunes, which I was surprised by. You mentioned that they themselves call it a punk rock opera, and you use the Who's Quadrophenia and others as a touchstone. I just want to throw out there, I watched the Green Day documentary about the making of this record. Sadly, it was not rife with tons of uh, extra information about the making of it exactly, but I did get one tidbit that I was excited by, which is that Billy Joe Armstrong has a JC Superstar tattoo on his arm. No shit. Oh, that's intense. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. That's, so I thought that was cool. But yeah, th- I thought, yeah, this record was a lot of fun. It, you know, I found my one of the first things I thought is like, I can't say I like Muse and not like this. It's it's effortlessly yeah. anthemic. What about you, Adam? So I I really enjoyed this album overall as well. And I, I have regret because I only started listening to it yesterday and I got through it once and I was annoyed with myself that I, I waited so long because I wanted to get more reps in. Now it's long, right? I mean, it's it's nearly an hour. That's not to its detriment. It was not built to be a pop album. So I'm not faulting it for that. But this is one of those albums where I'm actually looking forward to listening to it again relatively soon because I feel like there's a lot in there that... I wasn't able to fully digest. It's it's not super complex, but I feel like a couple more listens is is going to be uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I so despite some of my kind of hemming and hawing in in our our text thread, 
I ended up kind of liking this album. It, it definitely grew on me. I think during the first couple listens, I felt, and I'm not going to lie, I was a little bit daunted to see a Green Day album that was like an hour long. And I think I had some preconceptions <laughs> going in that it was going to be a slog. And there were definitely parts where it was just a little bit meandering, a little bit too a little too pompous, you know, honestly, not that, you know, we don't all listen to, <laughs> we listen to fish for God's I sake. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a lot of nine minute punk songs, just like yeah. power chords in your face for nine minutes. I thought you were talking about the lyrical content. It's definitely ham fisted, you know? Yeah. Which is okay. So I, I agree with sort that. I, I think, um, ham fist is a good way to put it. One of the things that despite, you know, and I ended up, you know, kind of, it, it definitely grew on me. There was a lot of catchy songs, a lot of, a lot of songs that stayed in my head. The, a couple of problems I had with it though, I felt like, so for one thing, I feel like they're at their best in, in this like minimum effective dose sort of capacity where it's just the meat two to three minutes, it punchy, tight, catchy. Like, I feel like that's always been their wheelhouse and they have that in spades throughout but I think the connective tissue sometimes is a little bit weird. I also, so just to sort of set the table a little bit on what the actual concept is about, you know, it's essentially about a, uh, a character named Jesus of suburbia, who is a suburban uh, youth hangs out at Seven Eleven a lot. He's bored. He's disillusioned. And then it's sort of a coming of age tale that, you know, we'll kind of walk through a little bit as we go through some of the songs, but I didn't feel much uh i didn't feel like the subject matter was super compelling right for a concept album like i i just didn't feel like hey here's a i, de- I definitely felt like i related to, to the guy you know coming from but you didn't care about him and that's that's where i was it's like okay here's a story i there's no emotional tie there and i'm not necessarily sure i've really heard a concept rock opera album where i did actually care for them I'm the visual aspect of a Tommy or a Jesus Christ superstar or a God spell. There's a visual element to it, so I imagine potentially the actual. Uh, uh, <laughs> I was scraping for other <laughs> other musicals I had actually seen. Damn it! Call me out. The actual Broadway show of this, I'm sure, is much more compelling. That uses all of this as its basis. That I'd probably care about the characters a bit more. It's hard, though. I mean, that's a high bar. I think there's a pretty big distinction. I should say, I don't know anything about the Broadway musical that this eventually became. And Nor do I. We yeah. live in an era where lots of things have become Broadway musicals without really having the backbone of a story. But if we're referring to, and nor am I an aficionado of Broadway, classic Broadway right. either, I should say. <laughs> but in the classic Broadway mold, you had to have a pretty good story to hang your sort of hat on. So I don't think it's fair to compare this to a JC superstar or a Les Miserables or whatever else you want to throw out there in terms of the story. So I don't know. I just, I just, I find them in, in different categories. No, you're right. I don't give a damn about Tommy and what happens to him. <laughs> so sure. that's, that's kind yeah. of the bar for me. Well, I think it's also likely that they didn't set out to write what would ultimately be performed on a stage. There's no question. They set out to write a, a concept album that, you know, threads through this, individual in his travels. Um, but sort of interspersed between all that were Rob, you mentioned a few like 
utter smash hits. I think what people probably know most is is Boulevard of Broken Dreams, which let's kind of give that a little bit of a spin just to um, there's no way you haven't heard the song before, but let's kind of play through that a little bit just as a um, as an example of a smash hit that I do have some issue with its positioning on the album. But let's let's hear that real quick. I walk a lonely road, the only one that I have ever known. Don't know where it goes, but it's only me and I walk alone. I walk this empty street on the boulevard of broken dreams, where the city sleeps and I'm the This thing plays like a greatest hits album. That's and, and this is one of the biggest hits, I suppose. But like I said, I was surprised that like five of these songs felt pretty darn familiar to me. And I'm not a Green Day fan. I've never been to a Green Day concert, and I'm not listening to rock radio. Dude, we did not in one set, but over the course of six months, we did four songs off this album when I was doing the cover thing. And I had no idea that this was which for, uh, for holiday format of our broken dreams, American yep. idiot. And yes, I All would pay four. good money for to watch ha- you guys play uh, Jesus of suburbia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't feel like learning the, uh, the nine parts of that. What's, what's the deal with the slash titles? Holiday slash Boulevard of broken dreams. So that kind of gets to another one of, and Rob, you might actually have some more insight to this, having uh, you know watched the documentary. I, I am not. It, I'm not totally sure why they bundled some of these songs together. Like I understand the extended song suites that sort of bookend this story in the album. So specifically, speaking of um, Jesus of Suburbia and um, Homecoming, towards the end of the album, we'll talk about both of those. So I kind of get th- those felt like they at least made sense. The the bundling of the songs, I, I don't, I didn't really get it to be to be perfectly honest. Yeah, I, I have I have no light to shed on this. The documentary did not give anything any indication of that because I was really confused by that as well. Given that they're really truly completely distinct songs, yeah, there's a fluid transition between the songs in at least in this case, but it's bizarre if the producer's sitting there and going, "This is going to be a single." Why would you put it on the track? It's it just seems really strange to me. Yeah. Yeah, like like there must be something there that advances the story or something that I'm not well, understanding. Here's you know? a hypothesis. My here's the hypothesis. It would be that they wanted you to be able to look at the back of the CD, I guess, which 
Were CDs still a thing at this point? Oh, yeah. And see no. immediately that this was a different kind of record based on okay. the times. Be- sure, maybe. Okay. Because they were known as such a band of for three minute and less songs. Yeah, sure. This was a way for them to have a bunch of eight and nine minute tracks. That's the like, only guess. Well, but some yeah. of the, the, That's the only bundled guess. tracks are still only five minutes long. And, you know, so the, the, the epics, the nine minute ones, the, those are the song suites that are just the song. But I, I you know, the, and, you know, check me on some of those times, but like. Yeah, but uh, ho- I'm looking at Holiday and Boulevard of Broken Dreams, which is the first slash track. And that, that clocks in at eight minutes. Okay, I, I got another hypothesis. Maybe it's about, oh, and I they did shed some light in the documentary on those song suites which we'll talk about, but they were created as each band member writing a series of 30-second songs and then the band kind of smashing them together into these song suites, which, given that, I think one is kind of a huge success and one less so. We'll talk about it. Another hypothesis for why Boulevard of Broken Dreams gets this treatment would be that it's uncharacteristic for them, so they feel like they got to rock out before this song comes on. But then even as I was saying that, they already had Time of Your Life as a hit. So that doesn't doesn't really make sense. Yeah, they had already, I think, started evolving towards some of the softer stuff. And I think this album, just despite those those hit songs, actually in in some ways like brings in a little bit back to those, you know, power pop, punk, mall punk kind of roots, if you will. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I really like the song Boulevard of Broken Dreams in that I think, especially like in the context of a concept album like this, like I, I think this says a lot about like death of community, isolation. And this is like where I think a lot of these themes from the wall show up, regardless of how well they're executed. So yeah, I just, I wonder how that's attached to Holiday. And I don't really understand it. Okay, I got a couple themes I want to bring up here. One okay. is, and this is purely, a, this didn't come from their mouths. It's just an idea that I have. Is that this album is aimed not at the people who like Dookie, but at the next generation. The same, the people mm-hmm. who are in the same age bracket as that, yeah. but the new generation of it. Which I think is a very savvy move for a band. That's one. Two is... One of the things I thought about Boulevard of Broken Dreams, but it kind of came up a lot, is this is this is arena rock. This is sing-along, sure. hold-your-lighter-in-the-air stuff. And in a weird way, I thought that was ironic because punk music initially seemed like, to me, was a reaction against the pomp and circumstance of these huge... Of hair arena, metal of and, hair, like, yeah, right. Or even before that, the 70s arena rock stuff, these big shows, big harmonies, big everything... So it feels like it's come full circle where there's definitely people in a stadium waving their hands sure. and singing along to all these songs. There's a Yo, circular element. To one it. thing, uh, and we're just jumping all around. Boulevard of Broken Dreams has a super awesome 12-4 Doom outro, right? Yeah. Can we just I'm... drop that real quick and just get a quick <laughs> taste of that? <laughs>
like straight off a Soundgarden record or something. Dude, this rocks because most of the song is it it flows. And when you come into the chorus, you have steady eighth note downstrokes. Jung, 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 jung. And that is so friggin' fun to play, by the way. <laughs> and it just has a feel that's much different than just a strum. When you're doing that, it's like slowed down metal, right? Yeah, totally. Metal is usually all downstrokes. And when you slow it down to a, an eighth note, <laughs> chunk, 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 it's just awesome. It's powerful. It's loud, forceful. Yeah, I love this friggin' too. I got to admit, it's getting a little hagiographic in the room here. And huh? I really, enjoy, I think this is a great song. It's like a, we're heaping a little too much praise on Green Day. When, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, sure. when we first announced this was going to be the record, I definitely saw it going a different way, this conversation. But I'm, I, I'll, let me continue it for one more moment. This song is 100% chorus. I don't know how you do that. Yeah. I don't know how it's scientifically possible. Carly Rae Jepsen, right, with a Call Me Maybe. What was the other one we talked about where they somehow cracked the code of 90% chorus and, you know, uh, 10% voice. verses? Well, th this this has the part, like, uh, it has a part where there's no words, right? Where it's like, ah, ah, you know, like, yeah. that, you know, that part. There's no words. There's barely a melody. Yet you're taken to a, yet another place that you can just sing along to and just, like, be with. Well, Rob, you, you yeah, made a, a comment that landed with me just now where it was like maybe we're putting too much praise on them. And, and I think that's pro that's possible. But the very first note I took on this in listening to it was I'm afraid that I'm going to judge this on a curve thinking, am I going to think it's really good for Green Day? And I do think that's a little bit against ah, right. kind of the spirit of, of what we're doing in terms of being like super objective. So I, I have been trying to temper that, like, is it, like, amazing? Yeah, probably not. But because it was better than I thought and because it was better than I expected from Green Day, <laughs> it's sort of, like, clouding my thinking a little bit. I don't know if that you all felt that as well. Yeah. I, I agree. It, was be it exceeded my expectations, and that's definitely a part of the bias here. But staying on this song for a moment, I mean, th these lyrics... Is he alone as he's walking? I'm not sure. He was, I'm not is sure he, he actually walking? Right. <laughs> the, the lyrics are so goofy. Like, throughout, throughout it, I had to laugh. I, I think if you're an angsty teenager who I believe this is aimed at and successfully aimed at, these lyrics are okay. But they're really heavy-handed and earnest to the point of cringe. <laughs> So that's that's kind of my biggest complaint. I, I do think that, and we can talk about it via each of the songs, they seem to be masters of simple melody. All their melodies are pretty darn good and memorable and chorusy, mm -hmm. and that is a real skill. However, <laughs> the lyrics could use some work. I definitely thought the same thing at times listening to the record. I think this record plays differently. Like if you give when I heard it was a concept record, like I tried to give it a listen through where I considered like, let's just give them all the credit, maximum credit, right? Like everything is like part of the, the concept. If you listen to it from that perspective, you know, the sort of seventh grade reading level that it's written at is a, like it's an extension of the character, right? And then is also sort of singing to that audience. It's, it's, it's smart. 
It's another way to look at it where it's like, eh, you know, it's just kind of, uh, pap, you know. Yeah, I. So, Rob, you, when you mentioned the, uh, they write catchy short melodies. Like, I also came away with the impression, and I also thought this before the album. But like, say what you want about Billy Joe and his shtick, the man can write a hook. There's no question about it. Like, he can sing he, too. His song craft, I, I think, even though it's a little bit derivative and repetitive, the guy can write a hook. I mean, he's sure. he's got that shit yeah. down. Speaking of which, I know we're going a little bit out of order here, but I think because we're talking about short, tight hooks and because we're talking about Boulevard, let's talk about Holiday, the song that bleeds into this. And, and maybe we'll also play a little bit of that like transition just to kind of see how it eases into that song. Um, but let's give that a quick, uh, quick little spin here. mentioned it at the top right it's sort of like an ingestion and then regurgitation of previous rock culture like this sounded like a clash song to me like hardcore and not in a bad way uh i also there's something about a line like how the dogs are singing a song a hymn called faith and misery like something really stuck out to the point where i googled it and found that there was nothing <laughs> So, uh, yeah, like I, so I, I wish there was more there. Uh, yeah, I, I, I thought it, I think it's a cool song. Uh, like it rocks, it's stadium rock for sure. We recently did an episode where we revealed our guilty pleasures, and I feel like I have to add this to the list. This is the most likely to go on a mixtape, but it does have a super cheesy bridge. Oh yes, it does. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> And you know some is of that it the just, talking part. Is that the, the like the walkie-talkie? Uh, correct. Walkie that's talkie the walkie-talkie part. And you know this song in particular, like man, they can craft hits. Hats off. I agree to what Alan said about Billy Joe's ability there. Can't deny it. They ring a lot out of pretty basic power chords and basic riffs and this kind of tiny box they're in. And in that sense, they started to remind me on this song a little of ACDC. Not as a sound alike, but as a band that just knows what they are and just does it consistently. And in this song, they added in the the haze on the hits, you know, the, like the yeah. snare oh, drum the haze big, that made me think of yeah. ACDC uh-huh. too. The big gang vocals, yeah. Exactly. Right. One of them's an amen, right? Like they switch yeah. to a preacher Can character and they get an amen. 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 Yeah. Mm-hmm. What about you, Adam? What'd you think of this tune? I didn't really listen to the lyrics, which is funny because, again, this is one of the songs I used to do. I, I just memorize lyrics and don't know what the hell they're about. 
this rocked. This is another one that was fun as hell to play live. That great riff. Yeah, just uh, I dig it. Yeah, I agree with all that. This was this is probably my favorite song on the album for all the reasons that were mentioned. Number one, I think it's got that throwback nostalgia feel back to when you know I was growing up when we were all growing up listening to, to Green Day. Um, and again, minimum effective dose. It's short. It's tight. It's it's in the wheelhouse. The the only problem I had with it, and there was a few instances of this, was not that I was really uh, captivated by the story, but there was a few points where they just departed from it entirely. And I think this was one of them where it was maybe like a bolt on where they thought, Hey, here's like a great song. Uh, I, don't, I don't think this departs from the story. I, I think that, you know, that this is the dawning of the rest of our lives, right? Like that, like the rest of our lives will be a boulevard of broken dreams, death of death of community, cultural depression, socialization, Peter Pan syndrome. <laughs> All that stuff. <laughs> Dogs and cats living together. Mass is <laughs> Total hellscape. Yeah. Was but I, it, was it, I the... Yeah, yeah. Okay, keep going. Sorry, I was going to say, was I the only one that throughout this entire album, there were points where they would hit like a big chord and Trey Cool and the drums would do something and it sounded exactly like it was going to break into a song on Dookie? <laughs> yeah. like, I, like there was like four or five points where I was like, oh, this is how whatever started like it sure it it felt like it could have very easily just been like oh and maybe they built that in so that during the live show they could easily transition play all of dookie which is 23 minutes long (laughs) and then come back in but that's part of what's impressive to me i i I also wrote down that this could have been on dookie in my opinion this song yeah and but i also think it's a progression for them this album so to have that connector to your past, but also feel like you progressed is an yeah. interesting balance yeah. to strike. Yeah, totally. Um, speaking of, of evolving, um, one of the departures for them was certainly the song uh, Jesus of Suburbia, which this is the song that sort of kickstarts the um, the saga, if you will, um, you know, the, the story portion of this. So uh, let's give it a, a play. I think it'll be hard to capture all of this because it's a nine minute song, but um I've broken into five distinct parts. <laughs> Fugues. <laughs> Enjoy. Get my television fixed. Sitting on my crucifix. I
so I feel like this is this album or this track rather probably is the most reflective of I think what they were trying to do with this album overall. Um, what would you guys think of this? There's there's a lot there. Yeah, there is a lot there. It's really hard to digest. I, I was reading just some notes that they they wanted five distinct guitar themes as they went through. Rob, was this the one where you were saying that they each wrote a riff and then tried to marry them together? Yeah, or even like little mini songs, I think is how they said it. So they all had a hand in writing pieces of it. And I thought this was the more successful version because it sounds like this was crafted that way as well as Homecoming. And I thought this was better smashed together. The transitions felt smoother mm-hmm. and right. more seamless. Homecoming definitely feels more like Oh shit, we gotta wrap it up. <laughs> you know? Like <laughs> Yeah, it feels like the end of a musical. Yeah. We're like, oh, here come the bells. But let's sorry, I'm I'm jumping to homecoming. Let's stay on Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I think it's a catchy tune. I think it's a, yeah, certainly ambitious and I think mostly successful. We talked in the text string, people pointed out that this definitely has some recycled other songs in it, like all the young mm-hmm. dudes. It's kind of the second section of the song. Sounds yeah. like all the young dudes. And I, I actually a... think it's a a mix a mashup of all the young dudes and summer of '69, mm. right? Like you got the, like the, the sort of the main part about being in the Seven Eleven parking Phil, when yeah. you when you mentioned yeah, that, yeah, but then it, then it goes into like the best days of my life. Exactly. Oh uh, uh, yeah. I, okay. So when I first listened to the song. I couldn't figure out where I recognized that summer of 69 part from. And then Phil, you mentioned, yeah, my, my brain just exploded when you said that and I'm thinking about it now. So and yes. then there's like the ring of it. fire sort of. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what that is there. either. Um, I think all of that aside, I think this was actually a pretty damn good song. I think it's, in some ways, and this is sort of a microcosm of how I feel about the album in general, in some ways it's a little bit less than the sum of its parts in that there's a lot of really great moments that I think are a little bit sloppily stitched together. And the as a whole, it's not as great as you know some of these individual parts were. And some of the changes were, were sort of abrupt. Um, but... You know, mm-hmm. I even think back to some of those like Guns N' Roses songs from Use Your Illusion. Like, um, that's a good call. I didn't think about like the song Estranged, especially where I, I think it like mirrors us a little bit. This felt like a way more fun ride than even something like that. So, you know, oh, yeah. I, I, I thought it was cool. And I don't know, I never saw the video until, you know, kind of doing the research for this. Did you guys watch that at all? No, I didn't no, know there was one. Not. It's okay. I don't know that it adds too much. In fact, it actually detracts from yeah, and and sort of <laughs> it adds to that idea of like this is not a sympathetic figure. It's sort of a faux punk rock kid who gets in a fight with his mom and all this shit. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I thought it was a a pretty well done song. The first time I listened to it, I thought it was a mess, but it, it definitely grew on me a little bit. I think this encompasses too, uh, like you were saying about how. A, they can write a hook. B, they know what they are and they they work within their box. And that box deals with a lot of really tasty dynamics, right? When you've mm. just got loud guitar and a bass and a drum, and I know on this they they added some other instrumentation, but they really do use the breakdowns well, the quiet down part. Like the whole album is not just like screaming in your face guitar 
punk beats. Like they do actually have some really nice dynamics that I appreciated. They do something in the first part of the song, right? Like the sort of like ripper at the beginning that is a very dookie move, but enough bands that do this is that the drummer sort of like takes a lap on the chords, just like a horn would, you know, just like, Oh, I'm just going to hit the changes. It's not really a drum solo in the way that like a drum solo is thought of. But mm-hmm. there's nothing else to call it, right? Than a drummer. Yeah, right, right. You know? like, yeah. It's, it's a series cool. of mini guitar solos. He's a great drummer. I think they've always had a great sense of dynamics. I've always marveled at that song, Basket Case, for being mm-hmm. such a simply constructed song. But the f- go back and listen to at least it's a fucking great enough. song. The fact of where, where <laughs> yeah. the drums kick in specifically is an excellent That like high hits, like yes. sort of at the beginning. Just, yeah. that, just that choice alone really pulls the song into something. It makes it, it elevates it quite a bit, I think. And so I, I do think they're good at that. And Alan, you said the word fun. I mean, I just think it's important to note. I think fun is the main word. For a record like this it's about fun it probably shouldn't be examined like we're doing over the course of an hour and a half here <laughs> too deeply it's you know by the time they get to that at like that time stamp around five minutes where they start going woo you know it's joyous i was feeling it i was along for the ride one more thought though is that i in the chronology of music which is this is kind of a band flexing its muscles right trying to expand as we've been talking about Go to the spot, the timestamp around 5.30, where it kind of slows down, it gets quiet, it gets a little, like, almost twee indie. And my mind immediately went to, Green Day's like, oh, you like the shins? Oh, you like the Garden State soundtrack? We can do that. I can't remember a word that you were saying. Are we demented or am I disturbed? The space that's in between is saying. Yeah, this is like this is classic early 2000s like indie pop, right? Yeah, yeah. And as I was looking, so the Garden State soundtrack came out earlier this year, so I was, I'm wondering if they were listening to it. But yeah, did that soundtrack have "In the Waiting Line" by Zero Seven by any chance? I'm not sure. Uh, all right, never mind. I'm sure yeah. one of our uh, listeners will, will chime in. Let us we'll know. Let us know. <laughs> Rob, if we're dropping timestamps around eight fifteen, it does this cool guitar riff that is like a real big like prog payoff, right? It goes from like this proggy guitar riff that sort of reminds me of uh, like the synth stuff on Quadrophenia, you know, that sort of sounds like a string section, and then it basically just like drops into a Ben Folds song, you know, like and it's cool, like it pays off, like the way you know pays off big time. I don't feel any shame, I won't apologize when there ain't nowhere you can go. from another break. 
and I'm pretty I'm pretty sure that's Billy Joe on the piano. He's like a decent piano player. That was one thing I got from the documentary is that him screwing around on the piano, playing Linus and Lucy and stuff in the studio. You know, he's pretty he's he's pretty decent. Well, one of the things I was really surprised to learn in researching this album was that his dad was a jazz musician. I think he was also possibly a truck driver who was maybe a moonlit as a jazz musician. And I never would have thought that just because you sort of develop these, you know, preconceptions of somebody based on, you know, what they're, what they're doing on stage or how they're, you know, playing the same four chords over and over. Um, but I mean, he clearly has taste and sensibility. Yeah. Agreed. No well, he does have the aforementioned JC superstar hat. So <laughs> yeah. no, it's like when you only <laughs> street have, cred, <laughs> when you only have so many chords and so many, that box, it really becomes about a, a lot of other like rhythmic ideas. The more I learn about jazz, the more I understand that it's about rhythmic uh, distinctions, not tonal distinctions, right? And can we say one more thing that I think this song puts on display, but it is definitely a theme really throughout their catalog that I was sort of re-impressed by is they have nice harmony. He, I think yeah, they're doing a lot that. Of nice two-part harmony, yeah. I think they're doing that fourth below of the main line thing. The Alice in Chains thing. Mike Durnt. Except in the Alice, as we talked about, the Alice in Chains thing is doing that, but they're cranking up the low vocal so that it becomes mm. the lead vocal in your ear. And that's what's weird about it. But I think when you put the fourth below the, when Billy Joe's singing something and then Mike Dirt's singing a fourth below and it's kind of placed below him in the mix, now it's just a little, like a fattener, like a thick dick vocal <laughs> effect. Yeah, yeah. Is that a pat- patented term? <laughs> That's official. Yeah. I, I'm gonna look. So, I'm gonna look for that plugin. Yeah. On my... You should. Yeah. It has. It, it, yeah, Don't it Google has a, that. No, serious. If you go into garage you, thick. Di- oh wait. Yeah, if you go into that. the settings, you can. Uh, you can actually. There's a compressor built right into it that you can side chain out. You want to check that out? Yes. It's, it's really sick. Uh, sp- speaking of awkward segues, um, let's go to another one of these like bundled songs that probably doesn't have much connection. Um, so specifically talking about the, the Novocaine She's a Rebel bundle, if you will. Let's, uh, let's start with the, f- the first piece of that and then we'll, we'll kind of take it from there. Take away the sensational inside section is lovely lyrics are pretty bad to the point of being distracting but overall it's a well-constructed song reminded me of a weezer song maybe and uh made me think of that 90s hit maybe it's not a hit that eel song which is also called novocaine so i felt like they were kind of for the soul yeah yeah Yeah. before uh, that's funny i i thought this sounded a lot like um one of the uh yoshimi the the Flaming Lips. Yeah, I, I hear that. Yeah, the, the, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 the guitar. I, I 
Definitely catch some smashing or uh, flaming lips vibes. When did that come out? Probably around 2001. Yoshimi? I think it was 2003. Yeah. So it was like right slightly yeah, before. Okay. I, I doubt they were copping that, but it's just kind of got those vibes. This feels really out of the box like- for me, this one. Like it's it's very wide open. It's breathy. There's that nice slide guitar over the second verse, and there's there's Wurlitzer. There's like a tremoloed Wurlitzer in the background. It, it's it's a really nice departure from the the standard you know eighth note slamming on the power chords. So true. And, and I definitely and oddly dug it does the first nothing part. for me. <laughs> <laughs> ah, well, no, no, I, no. It's funny. I everything you say makes sense to me, and normally those would be positives. But for whatever reason, in this context, I found this like. Not not like bad, but like it was like I couldn't pay attention to it, right? Like I was just waiting for the next song or the next, you know, the next power punk. Well, rock. if you waited thirty seconds, <laughs> yeah. it yeah. comes back in. It's sure. like, oh, here's Green Day again. Yeah, like they were so afraid of being made vulnerable in that way that they had to throw the most bring it bring it sort of trite power punk song on the record, I think, and she's a rebel in right after it. Yeah. Well, this is this. I picked these two, you know, this sort of song bundle, if you will, because it represented to me what I find to be the biggest problem with this album, which is taking something that I think sounds good, which I think the Novocaine hook, it's, it's pretty, it's, it's nice, but there's not a lot of there there. And then it segues into this. Yeah, exactly. Like a, like a mall pop mall punk kind of song that, that just sucks. And it's, (laughs) Yeah. First of all, I don't understand why they're putting them together again, back to like wondering what that logic is there, but also just within this, you know, five or six minutes, there's probably a, a solid like 20 seconds of like meat, you know, and the rest of it is like, uh, you know, and, and with an hour long album, do you really need all this other shit? Like, I don't think you're compromising that much to, to like trim that fat. Have you guys ever heard this dude, Tony Molina? Yes. He, Hell yeah. yes. Well, I liked, he's like, I think he's like a Bay Area guy, punk guy. But anyway, he writes songs that kind of sound like Weezer songs. You know, it's in this sort of general genre. But they're like all 40 seconds long. We, like we just, should we should definitely put yeah, some dis and dismiss. No yeah. way. Yeah. Andrew, he just has no, that's awesome. yeah. no compunction about just dude, ending the song when the material is done. So he's like the Mitch Hedberg of, uh, of musicians. <laughs> Dude, right, my, but these, but the song snippets are really good. Yeah, we'll put a sample on my, the, the my playlist. My favorite Tony Molina song, and it's probably not even my favorite Tony Molina song. I just like telling this story. I love sick ass riff, especially because you see it on the album, like you see it on the track listing, and like you know, you think it's really gonna rip given the other songs, and then it's this like dueling twelve string acoustic guitar, and it's like twenty one <laughs> seconds long. <laughs> It feels like, <laughs> and it is also a sick ass. It feels riff. like when I go through my voice memos and try to title different riffs, I'm like, I don't know what to call this. So, how about sick ass riff? It's not sick, right. but it's the only thing I can come up with right now to differentiate it from the other shit. It's voice. It's voice memo number three. Oh, I remember this one. So in this case, yeah, there's no reason for these songs to be smashed together. She's a rebel. Literally starts with a snare crack or something. Like, at least in the right. other Smash Together songs, there's a an overlap of, of noise where you could plausibly say, yeah, this was intended to be a transition. In this case, there's no such no such self. I mean, I feel like tracks four, five, and six, like, they move the story along, 
but they're kind of just like not good. Um, I think like the first three or four songs of the record are good. I think the last few songs are good, but the middle is like, it's moving it along the story, but like, I don't know. It's just something really missing for me. Uh, I also, I feel, I, I can't help but feel like there's an element that I'm just, I just don't understand. Like there's something about the way these sort of musical references were chosen that is also like part of the subtext and I just don't get, like, I don't, I don't follow the, the thread, right? Like, I sense yeah. that it's there. But then again, I might just be making up a story where there is not one. <laughs> looking for it. Yeah. Desperately well, looking for it. I think the it. mind wants to fill in the gaps, right? So I think mm-hmm. if, if you know that it's supposed to be this coherent narrative, and if it doesn't feel that way, or if it feels like it's, you know, like loose in some areas, like that, that makes sense. So speaking of kind of smash hits and... Songs that probably, again, I don't know that this song fits in the scheme of things, but um, When September Ends is another song we have queued up. There's, you've heard this before, but let's, let's just give it a quick spin here. Like my father's come to pass Seven years has gone so fast Wake me up when September ends What I lost Wake me up When September ends Listen, Dude, I love this song. No, I don't like this song. It's not compelling for a hit song. I, of course, had heard it before because I'm alive in the universe. <laughs> but listening in to it US. closely, I was just really underwhelmed, especially given all these other compliments we've been laying at them. I don't think the melodies doesn't do too much. I feel like it's trying to rewrite uh, Time of Your Life, their other big hit, but then I went back and listened to Time of Your Life, oh. and I think Time of Your Life is a far superiorly constructed song. It That that one feels like it could have been written by anyone at any time, has tasteful production with the strings and everything. I, I don't know. This one, to me, is, is a, was a surprising low point, perhaps because my expectations are high, because I know it's such a popular and well-received song. This song, yeah, I, I think it sucks. It, I mean, it doesn't suck. Let me let me rephrase that. It, especially relative to the success it attained, I think it's really weak. It, you know, I, I get that the subject matter is is really personal. It's it's about you know his his dad died when he was ten, and you know all that stuff. And and I can kind of feel that coming through. But the song itself is just it's a little bit flimsy. I don't even think it has much connection, even like content wise to the rest of the album. It doesn't fit the concept at all. 
Yeah, I was I was reading that they threw this one in that he finally felt I guess uh, he was emotionally mature enough to be vulnerable and put this song out that I think he had written ten years prior, uh, and yeah, he he finally felt like he was able to do it justice and to put it on paper and put it onto an album, and so I think they just kind of threw it onto this because it was ready at the time. In in the context of the story, uh, too, which is sort of like about. America, it sort of feels like, uh, I don't want to say like an anti 9-11 song by any stretch of the imagination, but like, mm. you know, it just sounds like, you know, I'm, I'm fucking over it. Like, you know, I'm just going to sit this one out, you know? You know, I didn't like, even make, I didn't even make that topical connection. I was going to say that to me, these are the worst lyrics on the record, apart from the <laughs> hook itself, which is nice. Wake me up when September ends. That's a reasonably clever line to build a song around. But whereas my problems with the lyrics on the rest of the record are that they're, as I said before, ham-fisted or just overly earnest to the point of being cringy, this one just feels underworked. Here's a sample. Here comes the rain again, falling from the stars, drenched in my pain again, becoming who we are. It's deep. That doesn't mean anything. Yeah, that that does have a coffee house college <laughs> vibes to it. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that yeah. one. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give you that one. I also think this is, and this obviously happens in a ton of their songs, but Billy Joe's like affectations, the where he's trying to sound like he's British, or I'm not sure. Like, there's a little that, too much yes, of that, that, and I think it's it's a little strained. I get that. That's something that that always I always used to joke about in high school that he he was like the opposite of Ozzy. Which is Ozzy is British and then he sings and he sounds American and Billy Joe is American and he sings and he sounds British, you know. So it's just always kind of the anti-Ozzy. I mean, I, yeah, it's, I get it's that. scientifically proven that you get more girls if you sound British. So maybe that's what he was. Right. He, he was going for science. <laughs> hey man, trust this. I trust the science. Sorry. Right. It's about playing the, the averages, you know, the numbers, the numbers right, game. Right. Cool. Yeah. So that's that. Let's uh, let's circle back to one of the other sort of bookend epics for for this album. So um, if Jesus of Suburbia was the opening epic, then Homecoming is is the uh, is its counterpart. wasn't listening to the story well enough but there's like a point where does somebody else come in and sing about being a rock and roll musician and then there's like a saxophone in the background and it kind of sounds like a bruce springsteen e street but like it was just this this felt weird uh this just felt a little more disjointed than jesus of suburbia i felt like that flowed well this smacked of in in my head, this is how Billy Joe wrote it. He closed his eyes and he pictured that moment in a musical when 
all the cast members come out on stage and they're all in unison and they're pumping their fists and there's a bell and they're doing something. And he was like, I need a song like that. And then he wrote this. That's the vibe I got. Yeah, I think that's... Well, first of all, you're missing the best part of that 1950s part. It doesn't sound like the E Street Band. It sounds like Yakety Yak or something. Like, yeah. Okay. All right. All right. I'm, I just picture whenever I hear sax and uh, in rock music, I go immediately to to Bruce. How dare you? His sax is way more tasteful. <laughs> but that part, which starts around timestamp 5:20, but you're missing the best part. I, I do believe it's Trey Cool singing instead of Billy Joe because again, I heard that they pieced these together. The individual members of the band wrote pieces of songs. So I guess. They let Trey Cool sing this one, but can I just give them some credit? I agree. This is a this is a train wreck of a song. Transitions are clunky. <laughs> it shows that they just smashed together thirty second songs. Whatever. But the best part, I gotta give them credit since we've brought it up so many times on this podcast, is there's a moment where the guy says, "I can play guitar," and then you know what happens after that? Absolutely a, nothing. <laughs> a, no, a cool guitar like actually happens he right actually after plays that. Something. Yes, it happens at yes. five fifty. It's a little noodle. Yes, it's let awesome. Me, let me go check out that little. I'm going to check that out right now. Let's drop that. I mean, it's half a second, but it's something. It's something. It's not, it's it's not something. just a G they chord. Fulfilled the promise. Take that, Hall and Oates. <laughs> Get a little, little Chuck Berry action there. You know? Yeah, at least, hey, it's something. It's something. <laughs> yeah, you cued sure. me up and you knocked me down. Okay, I give you credit. Yeah, this song fucking sucked. The only thing I could think, train wreck was literally <laughs> the word I had written down for this. Um, it, yeah, again, it had a, a moment or two where there was some rock and shit and it was great. But it was just weird. There was a point where it sounds like it's like a drum line comes in from like a marching band and there's bells and it's just weird there's also a point where okay i guess that makes a little bit of sense (laughs) but it still sounds weird i didn't think i didn't think of that either but that was a good comeback yeah uh there's also a point where i don't i'm sure nobody else picked up on this but there's this beastie boys song on the album check your head where it's like it's it's like a 30 second song where it's like the beastie boys they are they coming home and it it, there's a part that sounds i'm sure they did not rip that off but it's all i could think about we we should maybe even put that in here too um to add to the editing editing lift on this but yeah just it's weird I think that part you're talking about in the BC, I think that's Bismarck Key, because I think the story is they actually recorded him doing that like he came in to help them with the record but he was very all over the map and they could never tell when he was going to show up or when he wanted to record or when he would have the headphones on or whether he would be pointed at the mic so they just like recording at all times and this is like one of the only snippets they got that was usable that makes me love that song so much more that's but 
Yeah. Any any other thoughts on on this one? Meow. <laughs> yeah, I think this is when uh, when when keeping it real goes wrong. I guess. <laughs> I we came out so strong on this, but as we as we dig in more and more, I'm feeling less. Well, I I had a couple overall notes from the sonically on the album, which is the whole thing. While they do have dynamics, the whole album feels very compressed. Mm-hmm. Oh, I hear that. Which, which I guess is is their sound, their sound right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that that was. Uh, but this one is a complaint. different type of compression. This is like this is like two thousand five Weezer compression versus yes you know, teal album compression or blue album or wherever you come down on that, right? It just the felt very, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was just a very narrow, uh-huh. you know, frequency band. So uh-huh. it just felt like it was, even though it was open and wide and there were big spots and small spots, it I still felt to like it, it was in trapped. The car in a... And I actually found that um, on like on a longest drive and I it was actually kind of hard to hear the lyrics just like, and I thought the same thing, like the way it was mixed, you know, it, it didn't, didn't like really stand up to like an outside sound that wasn't supposed to be there. Cause I find a lot of like that tunnel of compression stuff can do. Right. It's ironic cause they're playing in stadiums for most of their career. Right. Yeah. But I do right. think that is their sound. That's been fairly consistent since Dookie. 100%, yeah. And sure. yeah, I always thought that that was one of the big tricks of nineties, the kind of nineties rock and grunge revival was their ability to take a loud band and in the studio kind of compress them down into a, into not just not a quiet band exactly, but something that had a narrower band and add that those kinds of like subtle harmonies and guitar harmonies and stuff that we talked about to make them a little more beautiful. You know, Nevermind is another example of something like that, mm-hmm. where they they they're they're this big raucous band and you can hear that in the recording, but you can also hear that they're being kind of contained and beautified by the recording process. Yeah, you can hear a lot more of the dynamics in the recording. Like, I've never seen Green Day live. I haven't even really watched much of their like live videos or anything. But I'm almost positive that if you see them live, a lot of the the finer points are not going to shine through. Oh, definitely got to be lost yeah. in yeah, in a loud environment. Totally. I had to note that my favorite moment on the album was in the the mashup of Are We Waiting in St. Jimmy, which is when Trey Cole just screams a four count. <laughs> Do you guys remember this? It's at it's at the 256 mark. <laughs> That's just great. I'm sure it was the snare mic picking him up, but it was just screaming. It made it made me laugh. I was super happy. What the yeah. That song actually reminded me a little bit of like you, you guys ever listen to No Effects at all or are aware of them? I don't know. Similar sort of uh, they're probably a little bit more celebrated by by actual punk fans, but um, nonetheless. Well, look, it's been it's been quite a journey, as Phil mentioned, um, the dizzying highs and and the uh, the low lows of, of this album. I think uh, for all their success, Green Day has still not been anointed yet with our stamp of approval. So I think it's time to go around the horn and ask ourselves a question. Does this belong on the list? Do you need to listen to this album before you die? Phil, moment of truth. So I'm going to go yes, but I'm going to qualify that a little. One, I looked at the list and I I wanted to make sure Dookie was on the list. I didn't want to make sure that this somehow snuck in as the lone Green Day representative. In which case this would have become a rubber stamp. No, in protest. Right. 
In, <laughs> in addition to that, I would say that like just what's interesting about this record to me is that it stands up to sitting down and listening to it. Also, more than it it stands up to just it being on in the background. I don't know if this is my favorite record of all time. Definitely not even my favorite Green Day record, but there's just something additionally compelling about it. I think a lot of the themes definitely ring true for, you know, many Americans. Uh, and yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was worth the 70 minutes. Yeah, it's an unqualified easy yes for me. My only question to the world is, do you like fun? Do you want your life to be fun? <laughs> listen to an album about war and uh... cynicism is a cancer, guys. And you should just enjoy this for what it is. It's the spirit of rock and roll. I'm a sucker for a concept album, even if the concept isn't that well articulated. And but it's it's just a lot of fun, great melodies, as we've said, and just enjoyable. And the kind of record. One of the reasons I say it's the spirit of rock and roll is because it's very. It's energy first, and it's the kind of record that young people who don't play an instrument yet listen to and go, yeah, I could do that, and then they start bands, and I want more of that. It's what we did with Dookie, honestly. Mm -hmm. Like, I could do that. (laughs) So it's a yes for me. I think this is a great example of a band that is growing and spreading their wings and exploring new territory, even though they're still kind of in their box. There's three big hits on this. The fourth... I know it's not necessarily that great, but it's make it four hits. Uh, this is a great album. I think you can have it on and listen to it uh, with uh, headphones and really analyze it and go into the lyrical content. Or you could actually just kind of throw it on in the background. And to Rob's point, just listen to a fun album as it rocks out in the background. So it's a yes for me. Yeah, I'm going to make it a four for four. I came in to, you know, last week thoroughly ready to shit on this record and, you know, my thought process was, you know, 10 years later after Dookie, there's no way that these guys who have attained, you know, wealth and fame still have something like this in them. But I felt like there was enough here that resembled the shit that I really like about Green Day and, you know, to, to just make it fun. And, and you're right. Music should sound good at its essence. And we can, you know, talk about it all day and crit- you know, be critical of, of the changes and the chords and all that stuff but but ultimately it sounds good i do think it's their best work and i think they're a good band i like them um and so yeah because of that it's um it's it's in there so i know that you uh you know we're nominated for a grammy for for this album green day but um you can now rest easy that you have made our list i think they won the grammy they won for so this this is something I've never understood. They won for record of the year for the song Boulevard of Broken Dreams, which uh, some for some reason record of the year is different than song of the year, which maybe that's due to production or something. They they hmm. were nominated for album of the year and they <laughs> lost to I have it here. Some Ray Charles. They lost to Ray Charles, put it that way. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, um I was not expecting you to say that. It was that. Ray Charles and various artists. Um, was that in support of the Ray album or the Ray movie? It was 2005, that, so I'm not was entirely it just... sure. Okay. Well, the Grammys has a, has a rich history of getting it wrong. So. <laughs> you know, 
One thing in my notes here that I just I would just like to add for everybody listening at home is that literally nobody wanted it more than Green Day. I found in digging around that the bassist Dirt uh, convinced Dirt. his mother <laughs> to let him live in Billy Joe's garage while he finished high school. He recorded their first demo record over Christmas break, and they left for the first tour the day he graduated high school. Nobody wanted it more than those dudes, right? Damn. So, like, living the dream. That's man. impressive. Yeah, that's yeah. I, I didn't want I, it that bad. And I don't. Yeah, I don't think the other guys even. <laughs> I don't think the other guys finished high school. Yeah, yeah. sure. Nice. Well, they uh, they they carved out a nice living for themselves, nonetheless. Sure. So let's uh, let's move on to to next week. Um, Tom's not here, but we've you know sourced the Albinator um, for this week. So, Rob, let us know what we got on tap for next week. Yeah, I've got uh, got a live feed from from Tom's apartment. He's not there, but there is an octopus that's going to point <laughs> at the next album from the Albinator. I don't know if we can get that sound effect in here. Oh wait, I was oh, hoping to have. Trey Cool just go one two three four one two three four and then you announce it. <laughs> okay, uh, let's go ahead and spin that wheel there, Octopus. And next week's album will be, drum roll please. The album is Moon Safari. And the band is Air. All right, I'm gonna probably be the odd man out. Is Air a modern band? Are they old? Are They're they like pretty 70s? modern. Are they? I've, yeah. I've never heard of them. They're from the nineties. Are they from yeah. France? Am I okay. the right band? They're French. They're a French okay. kind of a they're they're sort of in the same general cat well, I'm probably gonna mess this up. I was gonna say they're in the same general category as Daft Punk because they're French and they make electronic music. Electronic? I don't okay. think they, they don't sound much like Daft Punk. So Yeah, it's like a real smooth It's pretty chill. Sexy. It's gonna be a chill. Nice. Week, All boys. right. That is cool. Very cool. Very lyrical or more more just music? Uh, pretty much zero lyrics. <laughs> I think I I am down for this. You guys know me. If I if I recall air if correctly, it's like every song sounds like the Steve Zizou like David Bowie songs, except there's just like really cool drum and bass too. Is that about right? Has like a bossa nova vibe, maybe. I'm sure, yeah, there's some Bossa Nova vibes in here for sure. I The one song that I bet you guys will recognize is called La Femme d'Argent. I know that's on this record. Because I hear that out in the world all the time. It's an instrumental song, but I swear you'll recognize it. And it's it's a jam. I can get down with a, with a, with a no lyric uh, session. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No shit. Well, hey, looking forward to that one. Um, with, with that, I'm Alan. I'm Phil. I'm Rob. And I'm Adam. One, two, three, four. Boosh. (laughs) 